Well, um, it's really a privilege for me to be able to introduce our speaker this morning, uh, Pastor Tony Wood. Um, I, I first met his dad, and uh, his dad uh, was uh, just really, he's been a good friend for me. And uh, so I, uh, his dad called me up one day, said, hey, can, can you reach out to my son, Tony? I said, well, <laughs> yeah, I, I guess. And he said, uh, gave me a little bit of his story. Um, he said that uh, Tony had been involved in all kinds of, uh, um, I would say, aberrant theology. And uh, Tony was involved in some things that uh, uh, his, his dad was telling me, you know, I've been trying to help him to see that there's a better way uh, based on uh, truthful, expository preaching, going through the Word of God. And Tony was involved in uh, kind of a mega church, uh, involved in a church plant in Southern California. And, and I wasn't sure, you know, I'm going to call up this guy who, who's been in a mega church and uh, his, uh, one of his uh, close friends involved, partners in ministry involved in church planning was uh, uh, Tony's dad told me, well, it's Benny Hinn's nephew. So I'm saying, oh my goodness, what, what am I getting into? And so I picked the phone up one day and just called Tony. And I found him to be the most gracious, uh, wonderful uh, young man. And then as we started talking, um, our, our hearts were knit together. I just really have grown to love this brother very deeply. And uh, he has he really uh, made a significant uh, change in um, his uh, understanding of how ministry should be done. And uh, he and Kosti Hinn, uh, as I mentioned, Benny Hinn's nephew, he and Kosti Hinn co-wrote a book entitled Defining Deception, basically just saying these, these are deceivers. Um, this is not good. And so it's been a, a, an incredible uh, blessing for me to call Tony Wood my friend. So, Tony, I'd like you to come as we um, are going to uh, appreciate what he has to say this morning. Uh, he is the lead pastor at Mission Bible Church in Tustin, California. Let's give him a welcome. Well, good morning. It is nice to be with you. Uh, my assignment this morning uh, is to expose uh, you to the uh, apostasy uh, of the New Apostolic Reformation, or the NAR. Uh, and as L Dr. Lofquist has just said, uh, that is something that, um, you know, unfortunately, but, you know, Romans 8.28, fortunately, uh, we, we do know well. Uh, and so before we do that, though, let me go ahead and, if you would, uh, allow me to provide a few disclaimers on what we're about to do, uh, being that I've had the, the privilege of sharing some of this around the country. Uh, I, I found that there are some certain things that are good to be said up front. Now, first of all, let, let's be a little more honest about our first talk, okay? You made it sound like it was, you know, really, really, it was, it was gentle and gracious, but I, I remember the first time we got breakfast and we had palm trees and you were amazed by palm trees uh, and, and then you said, wow, Tony, uh, God's done a marvelous thing in your life. You were a prodigal, then you were a false prophet, now you're a preacher. So you kind of lumped my whole life into <laughs> three categories, right? Um, I, I would be remiss. I would be remiss if I didn't start off by just saying, um, you know, thank, thank you uh, to Dr. Lofquist, uh, to Dr. Montoya, uh, to Dr. Vargas, to Scott Bashore and all the other Southern California guys who are willing to come into, into our life uh, and really become the anchor in the middle of a conversion slash reformation storm in our, in our church uh, and in my own life. Uh, that's why we drive from California every single year uh, out here because you're our family. Uh, the IFCA is our family. It's the anchor in the middle of the, the madness uh, that is American evangelicalism, which we'll talk about today. Um, and it, let me also shoot straight with you. I know that usually what happens is people love to hear from Costi Hinn. That's Benny's nephew, and he's kind of gained some uh, acclaim, uh, and he's you know, one of my best friends in the world. But then when they find out Costi's booked, you all end up with me. I'm kind of you know, the second guy. I always view it as like, you know, who went to the moon, the moon landing? You know, there was, there was Neil Armstrong, and then there was the other guy. You know, I'm the other guy in this story, right? Uh, and so, uh, you know, but that being said, everything that we talk about this morning is, is, is real life stuff. And it, it's very personal. Uh, you know, I, this is how deep it goes. You know, 
we're talking at our church, you know, we had guys coming in uh, asking where the gold dust was. We had, you know, Costi's uncle, you know, you remember in the old days, flinging people and slaying them with a white jacket. Uh, he never came to the church, um, but we dealt with that. We had, uh, you know, my daughter was actually the flower girl in one of the Crouch Weddings, who's, the, you know, the founder of TBN. Uh, we had, you know, Costi received death threats when we were, you know, saved. So everything I'm sharing is very personal. It's very real, uh, which leads me to kind of this disclaimer. Uh, we are 100%, and I include us as IFCA in this, on a rescue operation at this point. Uh, and I want you to know that some of the statements that I'm about to make, which are bold statements, I want you to sense behind them the... The love in our heart, in my heart, and also the, the tear in my eye. So that as you walk out the door, you, you don't ever sense that this was simply a hammer that dropped, a fire hydrant of information about some of the frightening behavior uh, in evangelicalism today and go, wow, that guy's mean or we're mean or IFCA is going to be angry. I want you to understand that this has to come from a heart of love for these people because there are millions and millions of costy hens wearing skinny jeans and v-necks, our kids and our grandkids, who are being drowned underneath the waters of deception. And so please understand the heart from which this comes. And it's a pervasive issue. Uh, you know, YouTube and Google and iTunes have taken the madness of a few and they've put it into the earbuds and into the heart of our kids and our grandkids around the country. And so my, my, my assignment this morning is to simply, out of love, to expose us to the reality of our current evangelical culture uh, and I will do that to the best of my ability. Um, but I want to also make sure you understand that we are thankful to be here. So thank you, Dr. Lofquist. Thank you for being a father to me in many respects, which means you are getting very old. <laughs> Would you turn with me real, real quickly to uh, the little letter to, you know, from Jude? Uh, a famous letter, I'm sure a letter that many of you have studied. What we're going to do is kind of a topical, textual process this, this morning uh, where we will look at some of the statements Jude made. And many of you have studied it. You understand the background, so we won't go too deeply into it, uh, of the, the Gnostic forerunners or maybe the Jewish mystics or the Phrygian folk tales. Jude, obviously, the half-brother of Christ, was dealing with something. Uh, and instead of spending a lot of time in context, what I'd prefer to do is trust that as IFCA men and women, we know the context and then as we go through here, extrapolate out what we will call, uh, as we, when we get there in just a few moments, eight markers of an imposter. And then we'll take that and we'll translate it into the modern scene and see if by the time we're done, we can't have a better taste for the beast, literally the beast that is uh, in front of us uh, in our current Christian landscape. And so uh, please have your Bibles open there. Because the New Apostolic Reformation... Uh, what's often called now the NAR or the, uh, you know, the even NAR for short. I'll just refer to it as the NAR from here forth. Uh, because of its development, the massive and prototypical understanding as we would know it of evangelicalism. In fact, I would even go as far as to say evangelicalism as we've known it is no longer inside the current bounds of historic Christianity. It's no longer inside the boundaries of what we would consider the historic Christian faith. And I want to make sure that statement lands very sincerely and deeply in your heart. When we're using the term evangelical, 95% of the country is not viewing that through the same lens as we are viewing it through. An example of that would be that just uh, a couple months ago, 40,000 students gathered uh, down in Tampa, Florida, uh, and they called themselves the greatest uh, Jesus movement in history. And yet on stage were a lineup of false teachers. I'm going to go through the names here in just a few moments. Uh, guys like Benny Hinn and the old school grandfathers like Kenneth Copeland, uh, some of the fathers of these movements, uh, Bill Johnson, some of the sons of these movements now who are making huge headway into our world like Todd White, uh, Heidi Baker, 
and many others who call themselves apostles and prophets. And then at the end of the day, what comes out of it is the music, which is really its missionary. And some of you may have even heard of or sung songs by bands like Jesus Culture. Uh, even at times, I would include Hillsong in there. And many others who share the same stage. And that is the group that now considers themselves mainstream evangelicalism here in America. Uh, now, to get a proper understanding of what these guys teach and who they are, uh, those of us who are historic IFCA people remember probably the rise of the third wave uh, or charismatic Pentecostalism. Uh, John Wimber, back in the day, uh, you know, kind of excited a group of people who held uh, some of the latter rain belief systems and all the way back even to some of the German Hegelian thought that came across the pond. Uh, and uh, they, they took that and they ran with it, vineyard churches and others. And by and large, however, those churches were still inside a, an accepted belief structure and doctrine of Christian orthodoxy. But this group is different. Uh, this group is the deeper, darker, uh, younger brother uh, who has taken the third wave and turned it into a fourth wave of apostolic succession, of miracle mystical attempts, uh, of uh, what would, in fact, let me just describe them to you. The belief structure of the NER would be uh, that they will one day hold to a seven-mountain post-millennial theocracy, meaning that they're going to be the group uh, that is going to recreate the world into a perfect place, and then they will usher in the uh, the return of Christ, uh, based on their control of government, their control of society, their control of the arts, their control of religion, and on and on it goes. Uh, they do this based on a five-fold ministry. Uh, they believe that all of the gifts are still in play, including the office of apostle and prophet, uh, and that you and I can be apostles and prophets, and all we have to do is pay 350 bucks. And by the way, if you're married, you can do a two-for-one for 400 bucks, and you can become either a horizontal uh, or a vertical, or a territorial prophet or apostle. Uh, that, that's why in 2012, I think the first thing that really you know, got my attention to the issue uh, was when a young man came in and started telling me that he could be our apostle. In fact, I was talking with Dr. Vargas, and he had a young man come in and tell him that he also could be the apostle for his churches. And so uh, you will, over the course of the next few years, see more and more young people coming in uh, and saying that they are going to be the apostle of your area. So it's a loose association of leaders who come out of ultimately or beginning a C. Peter Wagner's class at Fuller Seminary. If you go back to the end of 19, early 1980s, uh, the beginning there, there was a, a book. In fact, Marsden, a lot of you remember Marsden's book about reforming fundamentalism. At the tail end of it, uh, there is a, a little uh, section on the mystical development between Wimber and C. Peter Wagner. This would be the group that then extended beyond that portion of time and began to shoot off, and this is now what happened in those subsequent 30 years. Uh, C. Peter Wagner established what's called the Wagner Institute of Leadership, and most all of these men, uh, Bill Johnson, Shay on people like, girls like Joyce Meyer, uh, Heidi Baker, some of the others that I've mentioned, they all went and trained at the Wagner Institute to learn the five-fold acts of ministry and be able to take and propagate this kind of teaching around the world. Uh, and so now we're seeing the sevenfold ministry, the fivefold ministry, uh, the music as the missionary, uh, Bill Johnson, Kenneth Copeland, Benny Hinn, Shay On, Todd White, Heidi Baker, Joyce Meyer, real local to hear, Mike Bickle joins in that crowd. Of course, Jesus Culture and a lot of the bands that come out of it. But what I want to do this morning is just go ahead and take some time and work our way through the little letter of Jude and then apply some of the warnings that Jude has on character to us in our day and age and see if we can't get a good understanding of who this group is and know how to defend ourselves from the new apostolic reformation. Let's go ahead and begin in Jude uh, verse 3 uh, and do a little bit of contextual work. Uh, of course, Jude writes and says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation... I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Uh, now, assuming that you've studied that, let's not spend an inordinate amount of time there, but these are very, very good reminders to us about what we're trying to accomplish. Uh, he's clear when he uses the term beloved. 
uh, that we have a very prioritized defense. I mean, we're assuming here that Jude is probably saying, my focus is the church. My focus is the, the called, the kept, the people of God, as opposed to sending out an angry tirade of tweets to the uh, unregenerate and apathetic world at large. Uh, This is not Jude attempting to send out a bunch of angry emails with big red cap letters. This is Jude saying, I love the church of Christ, and I want to care for you. Uh, But beloved, while I was doing that, making every effort to write you about our common salvation, our common deliverance, uh, he says there's something that popped up. And I call it a particular defense. Uh, He says, I was seized. I was pressed. I was obligated there. I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly. He had necessity. Uh, He he has the seized, the pressed, the obligated, the aorist tense pointing out a a punctiliar event of some kind. Uh, As I stand back and look at that, I, I begin to wonder what came into Jude's life. What came into the churches that he was working with? A lot of the modern scholars believe maybe back in Asia Minor, some of Paul's churches. And we begin to wonder what happened. Was Jude sitting there and he was penning the papyrus and he was excited to send off the scroll and he was excited to talk about the soteria and the deliverance when all of a sudden out of nowhere he got word that something had crept in unseen and he says, oh, I've got to change the letter. A reminder, friends, that the gospel, the word of God, is always the queen, but polemics are the the handmaiden. A reminder that we'll be preaching heaven, but that hell will find us at some point. And when it does, we have to be ready to stand up and to speak the truth. He says, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly. That term is so important. There's an earnestness to what we're doing, a passionate defense. Contending earnestly, the compound infinitive, to be the strong one striving. I mean, last night, I loved it when, when, when Pastor Chris pointed us to that moment of Christ as he was in the garden and he was sweating blood. A reminder of Daniel when he's praying and begging God for three weeks to show up. And a reminder of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they walk into the fiery furnace. That's what this word is. It's that, that pleading, that begging, that deep earnestness that says, God, please do something mighty. And I would say, friends, if there comes a point in our life where as teachers of the word of God, uh, we do not find our, our, our pulse firing, our passions firing, when, when the children and the, and the grandchildren and the next generation are under the as- assault of Satan, we need to check our Christian pulse. We need to wonder what in the world is going on with us if we've lost the fire to fight and stand up for truth. Uh, I was... You know, I was at an institution, one of our own institutions, and, and preaching about this. And I wasn't surprised, honestly, when you touch the, the emotional uh, button of young people in, a, in, a, in an institution uh, about these things, and you touch their music, that they would be upset. In fact, one of the men came up to me and said, one of the young guys, and said, uh, you know, we, we, you might have just made 400 enemies. And, I, and he kind of laughed. I wasn't surprised at that, per se. What I'm surprised often by is when we, as the older generation, aren't still fired up about watching our children sucked into and drowned by the assaults of the devil. That's what we need to be very wary of. I think we grew up underneath these statements such as, well, it's not about what I'm for or against, it's what I'm for, and these statements, which I think worked for a period of time. However, I believe you're going to see here in the next few moments that we are in a new era, which will require we stand up and contend earnestly for what? What's the end there in verse 3? While I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. And we're not talking about the verb, we're not talking about the action, we're talking about the noun, the faith, the unchangeable message. Uh, This is a prepared defense. Uh, It is the aorist passive, once for all. It's not manufactured. Uh, It's not changing, it's not developing, right? We were the group that stood up, by and large, for the ICBI. We're the Chicago Statement Group. We're the group that said, listen, God's word is authoritative. It is objective. It is outside of us. It is finished. It is done. 66 books. The canon is complete. And the Holy Spirit's the one that opens up our eyes to understand the truth. And we were the group that stood on inerrancy. 
And now that there's a group that's coming in and the assault is on sufficiency, we also have to be the group to stand up and say, the Lord has spoken completely. He is a truth teller and it is done. That's who we are as people. The unchangeable message of the living God. And what we're seeing is not a methodological or stylistic assault on our faith. What we're seeing is a, a doctrinal assault on our faith. Last night, Chris Bauer, uh, Pastor Chris, had us singing some, some rock and roll songs, and um, that was great. Um, and I, I, I was this morning in my own private prayer time just sitting there thinking as I thought through these things, uh, one of the songs that I liked to sing when I was growing up, which many of you may remember. Uh, it goes like this. The B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God. The B-I-B-L-E. Thank you. I knew we were church people. I knew we were doing this together. We must remember that the assault, and we must know and understand that the assault right now upon Our next generation is a doctrinal assault. It is an assault on the Word of God. It's not style. It's not method. It's not dress codes. It's an assault on the Word of God. Let me give you an example because so many of you are theologians in the room. Uh, Let's work through a few together. What you're going to see is that the NAR is saying instead of a theocentric view of God, a high view of a big God, we're going to have a low view of God and we're going to have a high view of who? Of man. It's anthropocentric teaching. And every single core systematic theology that you and I hold dear, they overturn in order to put man on top and God below. Let me give you an example. If you have a pen, join me and write these down if you would like. Number one, theology proper. I'm going to go ahead and quote from the seminal work by Bill Johnson, who's really the father of this movement. Bill Johnson is from Bethel Church in Redding, California. He has a school of supernatural ministry. uh, And he's the guy who's jettisoning people around the world uh, who believe and teach Uh, these things. Uh, I'm going to quote from his book, When Heaven Invades Earth. Theology proper. The NAR teaches a prelapsarian evil uh, that required God to make man as the conqueror. I'll give you an example. When Heaven Invades Earth, page 30. The planet, he says, quote, needed to be subdued because it was under the influence of darkness and sin. So he's asserting somewhere sin uh, before the arrival of Adam and Eve. Which then, if you've done that, is going to thrust mankind into the place of becoming, as you'll see, the Savior. He says the planet needed to be subdued. It was under the influence of darkness. Adam and Eve were placed in the garden with a mission. And the mission that Adam and Eve was given was to defeat darkness and to extend God's glorious rule through man. So once you've overturned the beginning of the story, what do you then do throughout the rest of the Bible? you begin to overturn every other systematic theology to build upon your false beginning. Uh, Number two, for example, Christology. Uh, Then AR teaches a full ontological kenosis, a full divesture of Christ's divinity while he was on earth. Uh, When heaven invades earth, I quote from page 29, Jesus had no supernatural capabilities. Jesus became the model for all who would embrace the invitation to invade the impossible in his name. He performed miracles, wonders, and signs as a man in right relationship to God and not as God. Pause. End quote. If you have overturned your theology proper, and if you have overturned your Christology, uh, you also will overturn your Hamartiology, theology, uh, your study and doctrine of sin. The NER teaches, uh, teachers link sin and sickness. Uh, when Heaven Invades Earth, page 45, uh, Johnson writes that a woman who needed a miracle once told me that she felt God had allowed her sickness for a purpose. We would all say, yes and amen. Well, Bill Johnson said, I told her that if I treated my children that way, uh, that I would be arrested for child abuse. After truth then came into her heart, he says, her real healing came. Uh, Number four, pneumatology. The study and doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The NAR teaches that a second baptism to perform, uh, exists to perform miracles. Now, I know that many of us who remember the typical Pentecostalism uh, knew that there was, they said there was a second baptism in order to speak in tongues. 
Uh, they're going beyond this and saying it's not about tongues, it's about being able to do miracles as an apostle. Uh, when heaven invades earth, page 129, the baptism of the Spirit is an immersion into dunamis. This is an overturn of the, uh, the word for power. He says, the ability to pray in tongues was a gift, sure, but to stand on the banks proclaiming, it's all mine, I speak in tongues, that's just foolishness. He goes on, the foolishness of God ought to do more than give me a supernatural language. His purposes are to bring us into divine partnership. When the Spirit of God came upon the people in Scripture, all nature bowed to them. So understand what he's doing here now. He's saying there was brokenness. Man was charged to save it. Uh, He is not a sinful man. He is simply a man who needs the power of God in order to get the second helping of the Spirit, in order to be empowered so that all nature will bow to him. We're building an anthropocentric study of man. Man rules, which leads to your soteriology number five. Uh, The NER teaches a healing view of the atonement, entirely ignoring penal substitution. Uh, When heaven invades earth, page 33. In Adam and Eve's commission to subdue the earth, uh, he says they were without sickness, poverty, and sin. Uh, Now that we are restored to his original purpose, should we expect anything less? And so he's now swinging the pendulum Uh, all the way over to say that when Christ saves, he saves out of poverty and out of sickness and also out of sin. Now, I just want to, for a second, stop there and see if we can't put practical application to the dangers of just those five, Uh, which would be, what does that mean for a woman like Johnny Erickson Tata? In fact, by show of hands, who this year would say, I've been through some pain Anybody here want to raise their hand and say, I've suffered a little bit? What what does it mean when a preacher looks at you and says, all of you who raised your hands, you just lacked faith? What does it mean about our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who are standing there watching their friends murdered by Boko Haram? What does it mean about our Chinese brothers and sisters who are in closed churches and being thrown into prison if it's all about prosperity, health, wealth? Soteriology. Here's another one. Number six, bibliology. Uh, NER teachers abuse Scripture from context time and again. We could actually have started with this one. Uh, You know, one of the most remarkable things here uh, about this group is that they've actually invented their own translation of the Bible. It's called the Passion Translation of the Bible. Uh, Anyone have one of those and not knew what you have? The Passion Translation of the Bible. A man named Brian Simmons uh, decided that he would rewrite the Bible. Uh, Doesn't know Greek and doesn't know Hebrew, but decided he could do it. Here's the reason why. He said because Jesus came into his room and he sat on the bed next to him uh, and he breathed Hebrew secrets into his mind. He added John chapter 22, by the way. And I think John actually had something to say about that in Revelation chapter 22 or thereabouts. Is that not true? So if you were to go and find Brian Simmons and ask him why he did it, he would say because Jesus sat on his bed and he breathed these Hebrew secrets into his mind. And he literally adds statements throughout portions of the Bible. Uh, I mean, uh, an example would be in the famous text in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 2. Uh, where Paul writes, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Uh, Simmons adds, proclaim the word of God, stand on it no matter what, rise to the occasion and preach when it is convenient uh, and when it is not, preach in the full expression of the Holy Spirit. He just adds that line in there. Because he wants his theology to fit his experience. As opposed to his experiences being driven by what? His theology. Here's another one, number seven, angelology. The NER teachers boast of angelic fantasy. Uh, When heaven invades earth, I quote again from Bill Johnson, page 140, angels will wait on you, he says. I believe angels will pick up the fragrance of the throne room, he says, through the words spoken by people. They can then tell when a word has its origin in the heart of the Father, and in turn, they will recognize that word as their assignment. So angels are in heaven, and when you say the right word, apparently they smell you, and then they come down and they do the work on your behalf. Here's another one, ecclesiology. The NAR teaches, you ready for IFCA, this is a big one, that a cessationist view of the Bible is antichrist. 
The NAR teaches that you and I and what we believe about the cessation of the revelatory gifts is, in quote, Antichrist. I quote again from When Heaven Invades Earth, page 82 and 83. Uh, Bill writes, can you imagine what would have happened if modern fear-oriented theologians had been with Israel in the desert? Now let's just stop there because I can say things at this group that I can't say a lot of places I go. Which is, it is only the, the, the theologian who believes in a literal, historical, grammatical hermeneutic and holds to what we believe about dispensationalism that can rebut what he's saying here. He says, can you imagine what would have happened if the modern fear-oriented theologians, that's you and me, by the way, had been with Israel in the desert? He scoffs, they would have created new doctrines, explaining why the supernatural ministry that brought them out of Egypt was no longer necessary. After all, now they had tablets of stone. From such people, he says, turn away. How can people who love God be offended by the anointing of the Holy Spirit? Every time we follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, we fly in the face of that Antichrist spirit. That's what he says about us. Eschatology. Number nine. Uh, the NER teaches a post-millennial theocracy, uh, which is ushering in the return of Christ. Uh, when heaven invades earth, I quote again 165, I do not dishonor premillennial brothers, I refute them. Their theology disarms and distracts from the true mind of Christ, which is one of triumph. Their predisposition to see a weak, struggling church in the last days has made it difficult to see the promise of God for revival. It is impossible to have faith where you have no hope. Such approaches have crippled the church. Friends, I'm spending a lot of time here because I want you to understand that this is not an assault on our methodology. It is an assault on the B-I-B-L-E and everything that we stand for. So as we move to some of these applications, uh, my, my goal is to emphasize for you that you and I are standing in the face of a massive onslaught uh, against everything that we've held dear and against the literal historical grammatical teachings of the Word of God. Uh, so with that, let's continue on and let's go ahead and look at some of these marks. I'm going to call them eight marks of an imposter. Uh, if you've studied Jude, you recognize he focuses on character and not really on the teaching. Uh, so that a lot of what he teaches, I believe, he knew would continue on and be used uh, throughout the centuries. And uh, we get to learn from them. Uh, I've alliterated all of them for you this morning because that's what IFCA guys do. Uh, so join me in writing these down. Number one, how do you know when you're around this, you see this, you view this, or it's in your church? Number one, uh, Jude talks about the imposter's insurgent entry. There's an insurgency. You'll see it there in verse 4. He says, for certain persons have crept in, what? Unnoticed. They are stealthy. They are traitorous. They are outlaws. Uh, and what a powerful truth to remember, uh, kind of like Paul in Acts chapter 20, verse 30, when he's crying with the Ephesian elders, right? And he's, he's, he's telling them, beware, because there will be actual men who will rise speaking perverse things. What a reminder that truth is not disembodied. You know, a lot of times we think it's out there, it's cultural, it's kind of in the, the nebulous sphere of the earth but actually here he says it is actually a real tangible thing that comes through the mouths of men it's going to come into your church through real people i think we tend to believe it's out there until we walk into our youth ministry and we begin engaging with young people and we ask them for the earbuds and we listen to the songs we ask them for the playlist on their phone and we begin to listen to the songs we trace back the roots of the songs which they listen to and we find out from where their music comes. Uh, in, in Defining Deception, we have a little chapter in there in the book where we talk about stage sharing. Uh, those of you who read it might remember, uh, what we tried to do was expose to everybody how these false prophets and false teachers who are on stage preaching what is clearly formal and material heresy are taking the stage with people who most of us would consider well inside the bounds of our faith. At the Tampa event that I just mentioned, you know, you have all these guys who are false prophets, and then who's on stage with them crying and kneeling and praying is Francis Chan, a master's university graduate. What that does for the next generation is it confuses them. This is a traitorous, slanderous, outlaw movement that sinks its way 
fights its way, moves its way, maneuvers its way into the background in guerrilla warfare. And before you know it, the lines are blurred. In fact, let me just go ahead right there and just, just put a little application in front of you. I would say that your ministry, this is what we found, needs to redraw the battle lines clearly for your young church. I would say as far as sitting there and rewriting the new member program, rewriting the board policies, uh, clarifying uh, which conferences you want people attending, uh, reviewing the, the CCLI rights at the bottom of each slide to see which songs your younger worship uh, singers and praise teams are, are putting up. Uh, I would even say helping people understand the impact of a 99-cent uh, iTunes purchase. Uh, the impact of that is that it's funding a heretical mission, a heretical movement. Uh, and I would help your, your church understand that. I would be really good about giving out safe websites because we have a bunch of YouTube theologians now who when they're searching for answers, they go on to Satan's system and they basically type in uh, and then whatever pops up in the top 10, that's what they believe. And then they go out and propound it around your church. And I mean, it's a, like a constant fight because what for so long was fringe behavior that you could guard is now coming into the living rooms and into the bedrooms of your own people. So we got to put up fences that we never had to put up before because it's an insurgent entry. Here's another one, not only the insurgent entry, number two, the imposter's immoderate lifestyle. Continue on there in verse four. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, the historians in the room, theologians, you will note the, the Gnostic tinge there. Uh, the Platonic dualism, right? The idea that your body can do one thing and your spirit can do another. Uh, because what they, they, they live by, apparently according to Jude, is a luxury over lordship. This is a group who says, listen, yeah, we know the Bible teaches us to do some certain things and to give up some certain things. But at the end of the day, we want to live in our luxury. Let me give you a few numbers in the modern landscape. Uh, Bill Johnson drives a $250,000 Aston Martin. Uh, Kenneth Copeland has his own airport. Creflo Dollar just asked his church to fund his $60 million G5. Uh, one of the brothers mentioned Winner's Chapel. David Oyedipo, uh, who's in Africa, has a 560-acre campus and a $300 million net worth. Uh, one of the most amazing stories I ever heard was talking with Costi. And we were, uh, we, were, we were driving home from, uh, actually, we were, dri- we were up at TMS. We were up at, at Grace. We're driving home, and he starts to tell me the story about one night where after one of the big conventions and conferences that Benny had done, they went into a hotel room, they shut the doors, and then the security guards, big dudes like Pete, all walked in, and they were carrying their, their bags of cash. So when you have 500,000 people at these crusades, and you offer healing, then they give their cash, and then you walk into the hotel room, and they just dump it out. No accountants, no banking system, no accountability of any kind. They dump it out on the hotel room floor, and then Benny sits there, and he just begins to hand out the cash to different people based off how much they assisted his anointing that evening. Costi took his money. They went off and did a little clubbing. They came back to the hotel, ordered up uh, some room service around midnight. They had a full-on food fight uh, in the presidential suite of the Burj Khalifa there at the top of Abu Dubai and caused $5,000 worth of damage, woke up late with a hangover and, and, and left the hotel and left them with all, all the damage. That's the kind of lifestyle that we are talking about here. It is a lifestyle of luxury. It's a lifestyle of greed. It's a lifestyle of no checks and balances. So there's an insurgent entry. He says there's going to be an immoderate lifestyle. Number three, he says that there is the imposter's imagined power. It's an imaginary power. Look at verse 8. It says, yet in the same manner, these men, also by dreaming. So there's your participle. Now watch how it modifies all three verbs. Ready? By their dreaming, what do they do? Number one, defile the flesh. Number two, reject authority. Number three, revile angelic majesties. Now, can, can I just, so I know who I'm talking to here. Has anybody ever watched like TBN? No? Okay, praise God. Don't do it. Forget I said it. If you ever did happen to go to channel whatever and you watched any of these guys, what will you see? Slaying of the Spirit, rebuking of the angelic majesties. No elder boards, no accountability, and all of it is based on what? Their dreams. Jesus Calling, the best-selling book. New York Times, bestseller. 
for three or four years running. Right? All based off the fact that God spoke some words to a girl sitting on a mountaintop. It's a subjective dream that no one can see that gives them a basis for authority that no one can question to walk out and lead people and promise healings that no one can ever authenticate in order to have followers that no one can ever speak up or say anything against. I love what Schreiner says. He says, dreams become the basis for their methodological madness of revelation, justification, and uh, approval. They base all authority on their dreams and not on the Word of God. And as people in this room who understand the fights and the, and the battles that we went through for the Bible, ICBI Article 17, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith speaks to the same thing. The Heidelberg speaks to the same thing. The fact that God's Word is authoritative, that we base everything upon it, that it does not matter what I think and what I feel, doesn't matter what my experiences are, we are the people who must shine the light on those who live and lead by subjective behavior and dreams. I think, you know, I'll just quote him. Bill Johnson says in page 141 of his book, he says, we've gone as far as we can with our present understanding of Scripture. It's time to let signs have their place. That's his answer. Gold dust sometimes covers people's faces in our meetings. Uh, all oil appears on their hands. A wind has come into the room with no open windows. At some of our locations, believers see an actual cloud of his presence appearing over people, and we've had the fragrance of heaven fill the room. Since early in 1998, we even had feathers fell in our meetings. Friends, let me say to you, if God were to arrive in the room, nobody's standing and pulling out their cell phones and pointing to take pictures. People are on their face hoping not to die. In one of the most remarkable videos of all time, in <laughs> all time, that was an over pastoral overstatement. In one of the most remarkable videos, uh, circa 2012, we wrote about it a little bit in the book. Is you see the master manipulation, what we call factivity theorizing, what we call the the argument of analogy, false analogy. Bill Johnson walks over, and you get to watch how a, sh- a wolf deals with his sheep. He walks to the side of the platform. And as always, these men are so kind and gracious, and, and, and that actually is something that we can learn from. And he looks at his people, and he says, you've all heard the world's questioning why we have all of these things happening at our church. Why we have feathers falling from our air ducts. And there's a uncomfortable laughter from the audience because certainly they were questioning why they're the weird people and after the uncomfortable giggle he simply says to them well psalm 91 says that he will cover you with his feathers uncomfortable laughter that's what they did too and then beating them to the punch like a bully on the school grounds with the younger kids he says i didn't think that it was literal either and everyone kind of gets quiet but we are not the ones to keep God in a box. And then everyone begins to cheer. I want you to think about what we just did. What he just did was said, listen, yes, it's not in the Bible. Yes, you're questioning it. But I want you to now trust me instead of the Bible and any one of his sheep who continued to sit in that chair in that moment from that point on was just sucked into the teeth of a wolf. Psalm 91 have anything to do with God literally covering covering his people with his feathers? Absolutely not. Does God have feathers? Absolutely not. Is that what David's talking about or, 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 or Moses? Absolutely not. It's an imaginary power. An insurgent entry in a moderate lifestyle, an imaginary power. Here's number four. Look at this one. The irrational response. The imposter's irrational response. Got it in verse 10. But these men, they revile the things which they do not understand. And the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Let me quote uh, Pastor John MacArthur real quick, because I'm going to tell a story about him real quick. Uh, He actually says on this particular verse uh, in commentary, you know, animals have no reasoning capacity, uh, no intellectual contribution. Uh, They operate on instinct. It's a kill or be killed, kind of in heat 
driven by cravings type attitude. Uh, I picture it as one of those dogs that you see when you are driving down the road and there's a dog who's in the middle on the yellow lines and cars are honking on both sides because they don't want to see puppy die. And for me, my daughter's freaking out in the back seat because she loves animals so much. And they're just proudly running down the middle of the street and everyone's trying to save them, but they really don't care what's going on around them. That's really the attitude that you see in a lot of these guys. Before we wrote the book, we sent a letter up to Bill Johnson. Uh, Costius emailed Todd White. Uh, I have had interactions with Dr. Michael Brown, who's kind of the apologist in the movement. Then I found out that thousands of people are writing these, these men. They just simply don't care. I was on my way here and I had a conversation with Costi two days ago. I said, what, what did Todd do with your letter? He said, well, he emailed me back and he said, I, I put the letter in the trash. I put your book in the trash. I think you hate your family and I'm going to go harder teaching what I teach because I think y'all are wrong. It's an irrational, intrinsic drive, not listening to anybody else, not taking wisdom from anybody else inside the Christian faith or anybody else in the world. It's all about our money, our way, all the time. I think one of the most fascinating examples uh, was a couple years ago when when, when, uh, a friend of mine uh, was interviewing Dr. John MacArthur on stage at a conference. And, uh, you know, being you know, out at the school, uh, you know, I, I happened to be listening to this, and, and, and he asked him about a man named Stephen Furtick, who some of you may have heard of, who's one of these teachers. Uh, I don't know if Stephen would be considered NAR, but man, he runs full-fledged in the prosperity arm of all of this. Uh, and he was asking him, he said, what do you think about Furtick? And MacArthur, you know, MacArthur asks, you know, says, well, he's unqualified. That was his statement. Remarkably, when Furtick heard that comment, Instead of maybe thinking as a 30-year-old man, I should go learn from the the 80-year-old man, uh, he decided instead, I'll write a book boasting about how unqualified I am with a bunch of analogical, eisegetical teaching. And then he published the book, and he sent to to Pastor MacArthur the book in the mail along with one of his, his own orange ties from his church, which was striped. And then he said a little note in there that simply said, hey, thanks for the idea, exclamation mark. Now that to me is an example of the hubris of these young men. To go instead of listening and instead of learning, I'm going to actually take what you have said about me and I'm not going to be humble and learn. I'm going to turn it around and publish a book. That's master manipulation. That's egocentrism at its very core. And remarkably, if you get a chance to go to, to Pastor John's office sometime, you know, he actually still has the tie hanging in the closet. Uh, maybe for motivation, maybe for prayer, I don't know. These people live off of instinct. It's an irrational response. Here's another one, number five. Look at verse 12, the imposter's insincere relationship. Uh, Verse 12, he says, These men are those who are hidden reefs in your love feast. When they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. (laughs) Maybe you can picture it. Second century, uh, the oikos, the courtyard, and people are gathered around, and they're loving the, the church. Uh, and by the way, you can imagine what it would be like to be a lady and you know, one of the husbands says, hey, we're going to have church at our house. And so every Sunday at 7 a.m., you're going to come in and we're going to gather and we're going we're to rejoice and sing and then we're going to read a little bit of these letters and we're going to learn about God and then we're going to have, have lunch until 3 p.m. And you're sitting there looking at him going, whoa, it's going to be a long morning. And you enjoy it. The kids are gathered around. Everyone's united. And then all of a sudden, one day, in walks this guy, and he's, he's, he's kind of good-looking, and he's a charmer, and he's got a big smile. And everyone likes him and includes him until three weeks in, things begin to change. And all of a sudden, instead of there being one group, there's two. And instead of the conversations being about the love of God, the love of people, they all turn into polity conversations. And before you know it, the small church begins to split as this man attracts the followers. The idea here, friends, is that there were people coming into these congregations and they were acting kind and they were sitting and laughing and then they were pulling people off to their own movement, their own church. 
And I don't want to over-apply that to our world today, but I would like to just simply leave an existential application on the table about who we are hanging out with in our pastoral councils, who we're gathering with in our city meetings. Uh, I would also like for you to consider, if you would, how many of the sheep in your own church over the last 10, 15, 20 years you've seen sucked off to another congregation who had bigger lighting, bigger songs, and a bigger building with a fancier children's ministry. And at the time, you're sitting there going, yeah, well, I guess it's just the way God planned it. And maybe now we're realizing that is, in fact, not a church at all. It is phenomenal, it is remarkable, it is frightening to see how often these great communicators will come into a town and they'll be putting on big concerts, be putting on Broadway shows, and people from historically great churches are moving from their churches and into the masterful megachurch which apparently meets all of their pragmatic needs. And when you listen to the sermons, you realize this is not theocentric, this is anthropocentric, this is not of God, this was of a man. There's an irrational response, there's an insincere relationship, it looks neat on the outside, but it has an agenda on the backside. Uh, Here's another one, look at uh, verse 12, the metaphors, you've heard these before, uh, I call this the imposter's impotent outcomes. He says, there's clouds without water carried along by the winds. There's autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead and uprooted. There's wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam. Wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. You you guys have probably studied these, right? The clouds without water, uh, the autumn trees, the wild waves of the sea, uh, the wandering stars. A bunch of illustrations about a ministry that people want, but not a ministry that people need. It's basically saying, hey, we're going to give you all this stuff, and we're going to promise you all this stuff, but at the end of the day, we're not going to actually do anything. You can imagine what it was like to be uh, you know, navigating out at port for four months, and, or out at sea, and then you come in, you think we're finally safe. But instead of being safe, there's a rock that gets you right at the tail end. You might imagine what it would be like to go into the orchard, and you want to have some fruit, you see all the trees, and... Uh, a bunch of the trees are dead, not offering you anything. You might imagine what it would be like to, uh, to be sitting there at the beach and you hear the incessant foaming, pounding of the waves and you're not able to focus because you're sitting there talking and you can't make sense out of what you're saying. Uh, wandering stars, you're sitting there and you're looking at the sky and you think we're going to be able to get home following the stars, but actually they're not in the right order. They're not able to guide you where you want to go. That's what these people are doing. In fact, I often call this the, the big three. If you were ever to watch TBN or iBethel or uh, Furtick on TV uh, or potentially the Hillsong sometimes, Judas Smith or any of these guys, I call it the big three. There's three things that you're always going to see when you watch them preach. And then there's three things that you're never going to see when you watch them preach. Let me give them all to you. Here's the three things you'll always see. Number one, there'll always be a nod to God. They're going to have a Bible open and they're going to talk a little bit about God. Then they're going to walk away from the stage. So they're going to nod to God, they're going to read an analogical story from the Old Testament, some illustration, then they're going to walk away from the stage, and then they're going to begin to pace a little bit, and then there's going to be some mood music, which will create, number two, a crescendo in emotion, and then number three, there will be a self-help maxim that you get to take away. So it'll go like this. I'll just act it out for you, because sadly I used to be a part of it. David slew Goliath with his sling. Organ. Can I get some help on the organ? Give me a little pad there. Then I begin pacing, okay? You begin moving a little bit. And you preach and talk and you look at everyone. Not about God, it's about them. Don't you want to slay your Goliath too? In fact, who here in the room has a Goliath? Something big. Something that's in your way. Something imposing. Something that scares you. Music, come on. Come on. Got to get louder now. 
it, it feels uncomfortable for us, doesn't it? Because we, we know we've left this and we've made it about this. And then invariably, just at the peak of the emotion, there will be a self-help maxim, a takeaway. Well, if you always do what you always did, you'll always get what you always got. And you're going to watch people stand up in their seats and begin to applaud. Woo! Why? Because the attention was no longer on God. The attention got on us. And people love to cheer about who? About themselves. You can always get people to cheer about their self-empowerment. That is Anthony Robbins 101. Which is why, by the way, when you go to these events, you will never see average-looking people on the stage. It'll be beauty queens. It'll be buff men because a part of this is they flex at you why they do it. Because what are they saying? If you will believe what I want you to believe and give your money the way I want you to give it, then you will one day look like this. And you cannot preach a big person theology, anthropology, unless you put big people, good looking people on the stage. It is 100% a Luciferian power grab. So you've got an insurgent entry, you've got an immoderate lifestyle, you've got an imagined power, you've got an irrational response, you've got an insincere relationship. Uh, let's finish with just a couple more for the sake of time. Uh, let's go ahead and finish with this one. Uh, by the way, can I just say, you want to know the three things that I, you'll, 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 you'll always hear is nod to God and then an emotional climax and then a self-help maxim. You know the three things that you'll never hear? You're going to love this because we're IFCA, right? Can I get an IFCA like, like a cheer for IFCA? Yeah, come on now. All right. This is our family, so let's talk honest. Here, here's the thing that you will never hear. Ready? You'll never hear number one exposition, verse by verse teaching. Why? If you teach verse by verse, you're going to get to verses that you don't like. And if you're elevating man, you're going to get to verses that say man's not the hero. So exposition you'll never hear. Number two is repentance. Why? If it's not a sin problem, it's a powerment problem, then you don't need to ever repent from your sins and change. And number three, you know what you'll never hear? Is separation. IFCA, can I get an amen? <laughs> We're the only ones left on that one, by the way. You know why you'll never hear separation? Because that would mean that it's no longer about being different from the world. Or actually, it's about being different from the world instead of attracting the world. And everything here is pragmatic attraction to get more people in the seats and more money in the pockets. And the moment you say separation or narrow way, you're going to be pushing people away. They won't do that. So three things you'll never hear, exposition, repentance, or separation, ever. Even your altar calls. I'll give you an example of an altar call. How much time do I have less? I'm, I'm starting, I'm way off track at this point. I don't even know. I'm, I'm pulling a Montoya. I'm over here, chip salsa, <laughs> chimichangas. This is the, this is the, t t the hot sauce on top. It's salsa, man. So, all right. We'll unbutton it. <laughs> I'm the machete. So let, let, let me just, because this is my, my family, um, let me just even give you an example, since Dr. Lafka says we have time, of how this works. It's manipulation on the preaching. It's manipulation on the emotion. It's manipulation on the content. But it's also manipulation on the call itself. Watch this. If I say to you, you are a great sinner. You are a tremendous sinner. But Jesus Christ is a great Savior. We as true Bible-believing Christians go, there is nothing that brings me more hope than that statement. Yes, I am a great sinner, but He is a great Savior, and I love Him, and I trust Him, and it's all about Him. That's, that's who we are, but that's different from this. You know what? You're broken, and you're in pain. God doesn't want you in pain. 
He wants you healthy and whole. If you want to be healthy and whole, I want you to stand up right now and I want you to come forward and you kneel because God is going to make you healthy and whole. Did you sense and see the subtle differences between the two? One is you're depraved, you're wrong. You need radical regeneration in your life. The other one is is you're broken, you're hurt. It came from the outside. You're lonely, you're abused. It's not your problem. You're not the sinner. It was everybody else. Do you want us to help you with that? That's the difference. One is big God and little me. And the other one is big me and little helpful God. Let's do two more for the sake of time. Verse 16, the imposters in placable promises. Look at verse 16. He says, these are grumblers. Uh, finding fault and following after their own lust. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. If you have a pen, just circle flattering people. It's the Hebrew idiom it pulls from there, the admiring faces, which is emphasizing the secretive power plays, the whispers. And and the key to this is that they're master manipulators. They're going to switch it all around ahead of you so that you actually think they were right the whole time. Uh, In fact, let me give you an example. Bill Johnson knew that there would be proper Bible-believing believers like us who would say these things. And so he jumps out ahead of us when heaven invades earth. Again, I quote page 160, and listen to what he says. He tells his people, Mary, I quote, would have to bear the stigma of mothering an illegitimate child. And I want you to think about the manipulation of this, just how, 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 how absolutely conniving it is. He says, Mary, the mother of Jesus, would have to bear the stigma of mothering an illegitimate child. There's his, his premise, his truth proposition. Then he says, like Mary, to his people. Those who experience revival here, that's them, have spiritual encounters that are beyond reason. See, he's combining them and Mary. Sometimes, he says, our dearest friends want to put us away, declaring the move to be from the devil. Those are the truth teachers who are trying to salvage these people. And then there's the fact that we are looked at as a fringe element by the rest of the body of Christ. Friends, he says, The willingness to bear reproach from our brothers and sisters is part of the cost that we pay for the move of the Spirit. He just made his people the martyrs when you try to save them from the truth. Master manipulation. One more. We have the insurgent entry, the immoderate lifestyle. We have the imagined power, the irrational response, the sincere relationship, the impotent outcomes, the implacable promises. And then here's the last one. Where does it all lead? What's the goal? Verse 19, the imperious message. You can cue the Star Wars music here. Verse 19. He says, these are the ones, these men, who cause divisions. That's the key. Because they're worldly minded and they are devoid of the spirit. This is a power play. It's an imperial army. Uh, You know, the motive behind the false teacher's behavior is distinction, superiority. A lot of you, again, will sense that Gnostic elitism. Let me go ahead and take you just behind the veil a little bit. uh, And let me confess something to you. Uh, I had mentioned our involvement with with, with the Crouches and TBN and this whole group. Um, I'm so thankful that you... The Lord used you to save me out of this. Um, and, and Dr. Lofquist, by his mercy and by his grace, uh, I will never forget the moment my eyes were opened up to how absolutely creepy all this really is. Uh, I was sitting at the TBN studio about to do one of their shows for the young people. And there was a, a moment where Paul Crouch Sr. walked in. He's the founder and the owner of the whole TBN thing with all the gold chairs and all the stuff. And he walked in. And everyone got really, really quiet as if a monarch had come into the room. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, what is going on right now? And there was a young lad, 20 years old, who would literally follow this 80-year-old man around with his hand on his shoulder. And his one job was to be his butler boy. So as Paul would walk around, this, this young boy had to follow him around with his hand on his shoulder. Picture a pharaoh in Egypt. And when he would want to have a piece of paper handed to him, he would say, paper please. And the little boy would run over and he would grab the paper and hand it to him and then put his hand right back on his shoulder. That's when my eyes were opened to how the system really works. They call it an honor system. 
An honor system means that the elite are the grandfathers. They have the fathers underneath them. And that you are never to touch the Lord's anointed, ever. And you call them Papa. You have a title for them. It's a patristic structure. And that's why they have the schools of supernatural ministry. Uh, And that's also based off their belief of apostolic succession, meaning that they are carrying the mantle of the prophets and of the apostles. And like I mentioned earlier, if you want to pay enough money, then you can get into the game and you can be like them. It is 100% a Luciferian power grab in order to keep the top-tier elite always in power. Now, here's the frightening thing, friends. There are over 500 million people across the world now who are buying into this belief system. Our kids and our grandkids are the ones that are listening to this music who are buying into the power of the presence, into apostolic succession, and are being sucked into the concerts and the events and even traveling to the schools to learn how to operate in the fivefold ministry and do mystical miracles like these supposed generals of the faith. Friends, these are real kids, real people, real young adults who have no clue. And they're being sucked in. See, in the 1920s, the modernists cut out of our Bible. And it was IFCA who stood up and said, not on our watch. In the 2020s, it'll be the mystics now who are adding to our Bible. And it's got to be who? The IFCA. The Bible believers who stand up and say what? Not on our watch. The battlefield has shifted. The enemy looks a little bit different wearing skinny jeans and v-necks. But the love of God and the weapon that we wield is still exactly the same. And that weapon is what? The word of God. We are brothers, we are united, and we are strong because we believe in the B-I-B-L-E. In fact, let's just finish with that this morning, shall we? The B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God. The B-I-B-L-E. Stand up. Let's do it one more time together, shall we? It's like going back to Sunday school, 1964. Here we go. Ready? The B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. One more time, let's hold them up, let's hold them up. It's getting a little fourth wave in here, Les. All right, you know what, we're going to sing together in heaven, Van said. Let's sing now, let's sing loud. The B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. Let the angels hear. Bible! Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you that we have a coalition of saints, a family of friends and brothers and sisters, that we can be united and strong around the perfect truth that you've given us. Give us a ferocity as we step forward from this room. Give us a passion as we step forward from this room. Give us a strength as we step forward from this room. Help us to be willing to engage in the rescue operation to seek and save the next generation who are being lost. We know that you will build your church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So you receive the glory and honor as you do this mighty work through the IFCA and many others. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen.